This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Ian Todd, Democratic nominee for Congress in Minnesota's 6th. Ian, for starters, could you tell us about your background and what pushed you to jump into this race? Definitely. Uh, let's see here. I, I, I guess the most significant part of my background uh, would be the military experience. I served six years in the Air Force as a geospatial intelligence analyst. During that time, I, I learned a lot about just foreign policy, uh, how we interact with other sovereign nations across the world, uh, specifically during wartime, but also how we deal with other nations involved in those wars uh, through the UN, but also countries like Russia and China that, that don't necessarily play by the same rules. You learn a lot of fascinating things about uh, where we are in the world, how we operate, especially diplomatically. And I think that that lends itself really well to, to running for U.S. Congress. Uh, specifically, that's the main reason why I decided that I didn't want to go for a more local seat, even though this is the first time that I'm running and I'm only 28 years old. Uh, my experience has just lent itself to uh, the federal level. And I think that that's the much more reasonable place for me to be. And what aspirations do you have as a member of Congress? What what do you hope to do better than what your incumbent is doing right now? Oh, well, that's uh, that is a multitude of things. I, I would say the number one thing that I really care about and why I'm so passionate about getting in here is getting the money out of politics. I really do worry that our political system is uh, hopelessly corrupt when we allow unlimited amounts of corporate and special interest PAC money to flow into our legislative branch. Uh, so I really want to put a stop to that. It goes so far beyond just that when it comes to my opponent. My opponent is a, a strong believer in taking away environmental protections so we can start mining in national forests. And I just, I don't think that that's the correct way to proceed. First off, I think that that could be damaging to the tourism industry. Uh, but I also believe that this this hurts our heritage. Uh, there's a reason why we've made places like the Boundary Waters up here in Minnesota and places like the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone National Monuments. And it, they're worth protecting in their own right. Uh, and I just don't believe that we need to be drilling those right now when you can actually more successfully and che uh, more price effectively uh, get things like copper out of... Uh, recycled electronics than you can by mining. So I I like to, to think of things in terms of, uh, do we need to do these things? And how can we find alternatives that are better for our country, better for our economy and ourselves? So could you tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your race? Your district isn't considered a top target for the party. Why do you think this is the right year for you. Yes, absolutely. So in 2016, uh, there was a 30-point gap between uh, the current incumbent, Tom Emmer, and the Democratic challenger. And that's a lot of points to make up. But 
we live in a fascinating district here. So back in 2012, and of course, that's the same district lines. It was after the census. Uh, the Democrats came within one point of finding victory here. Since that time, we've uh, we've become a little bit of a different district. About a fourth of the people who live here are brand new to the district uh, within like the last uh, five, six years. Uh, so that is that's a big difference. We have an incredible uh, Somali population that lives here. Uh, they were mostly refugees uh, during that time, and a lot of them have their citizenship at this point, and they're learning how to vote, and they most certainly intend to use their civic powers. So for those reasons, we're kind of looking at a brand new district. So I'm looking at this not focused on the numbers of years before, but on what we can accomplish on a progressive agenda. You know, just having a pure policy policy, campaign, what can we do in what's considered conservative? And so far, we've been finding a lot of luck. So what problems are faced by the Somali-American population in your district, and what do you hope to do in Congress to support them? Xenophobia uh, is, is one of their biggest issues. Uh, when it comes down to uh, how that specifically affects them, I would say that they're trying very hard to jump into that entrepreneurial spirit of America. Uh, a lot of them want to make their own business. Uh, they they want to find their own opportunities here. But it can be exceedingly difficult for them to find uh, spaces to place their stores. I, I've heard from multiple people that... If you're a Somali American and you're trying to get a space for your business, have a white person call for you on your behalf. And it's it's upsetting that they have to do that, but but that's what they've been placed with. Uh, there's there's a large population of of Somali Americans living in Saint Cloud, and. St. Cloud also has some issues sometimes of neo-Nazi propaganda being spread on the streets. Uh, generally, it's signs being posted on uh, trees or, or light posts. But I, I think the main thing that we need to do is just fight against that xenophobia, fight against that fear of others. And it would be most effective if we could get that language out of our White House, get that kind of language out of our government. And in a lot of ways, I believe that we were pushing in that direction, even the Republicans, before uh, Donald Trump was elected. I believe that we can head that direction again, because if we don't find the ability to, to unite, then we're going to be living in a very divided America for a long time. Yeah, some of the specifics for them, uh, make sure that they're, they're not being... Uh, chosen against whenever they're trying to find space or trying to find loans for their businesses. And that will be one of the most helpful things that we can do. And in terms of policy, what do you hope to do to combat xenophobia? I think one of the biggest things that we can do is work on our, uh, our actual immigration process. Uh, now, we're we're certainly going to have problems with xenophobia. We've always seen these exact trends happen every time new people come into America. Uh, we, we saw it with the Germans back in the 1940s, uh, and now we're just seeing it again. It's, it's the same trends over and over. But as we keep on going on, I think that we find that our, our newer generations become more and more tolerant and more and more open to new cultures. Part of it is just to to withstand the test of time. But the other part of it needs to, to be able to make sure that we're taking out the systemic racism that exists within structures of the United States. Uh, and of course, our immigration policy does have some 
structural racism to it. It, it ends up being a lot easier for Europeans, for example, to find uh, a proper path to citizenship in America than it is for really almost anyone else. So it's... Uh, that's one of the things I'd like to see is uh, a lot more paths to citizenship for anybody who's who's trying to get into America, because I figure anyone who, who really wants to, to say goodbye to their old life so that they can have a chance at the American dream, I want them to have that. Anyone who wants to be an American can be an American. And what are your thoughts on the family separation crisis? What would you do in Congress to actually address it? I think it's absolutely a humanitarian crisis. I, I believe that we can approach this uh, solely in Congress. We need to make sure that we've we've found all the the children that are still separated, and make sure that we're we're getting them united, if not with their family themselves, but at, at very least with uh, with some family or good guardians. But the reality is, what we decided to do can't just be undone. Uh, this damage has been done. All the families that have, have gone through this have a lot of baggage that they'll be carrying forever because of what we've done. I, I believe that when we have a, a humanitarian crisis like this, and whenever so few people were responsible in creating it, that we do need to make sure that, that people do face some sort of justice for making these terrible decisions. And what, what would that justice look like in your eyes? That's a fantastic question. For a crisis like this, I I hate to say it, but more than likely this is going to come down to an impeachment and we're going to see very little in the way of uh, of anyone really holding the responsibility. We should definitely launch investigations. Uh, the decisions that that were made to come to this conclusion that this is how we need to proceed, we need to find out who is involved in that and... I do believe that, that there should be trials for this. I don't know what will happen in the end because I, I understand when we're at situations like this, these trials are usually done by the Senate. And this is not exactly the Senate that I would believe would prosecute anyone for any of these crimes. But perhaps that'll change after 2018. And what about the agencies that have implemented family separation in the first place, specifically ICE and CBP? Specifically with ICE, I think it's mostly a, uh, a repetitive organization. There's nothing really specific under the, under the operations of ICE that aren't taken care of by other organizations. And by virtue of their existence, they're siphoning away a lot of money from those organizations. We do prosecute people, and we do send people back to uh, uh, their home countries if they're here illegally legal and, and committing crimes. And that was done long before ICE ever existed. It seems to me that we're using ICE in a very a very uncouth way. It's being used to break up families, and it's not being used to truly make us safer. So I would far rather see the money that was diverted from FEMA to be put right back into FEMA. That is much more important to the safety of our nation. Now, when it comes to uh, Customs and Border Patrol, uh, I mean, I, I believe that we still need that organization, but I think that we should review uh, its structural organization and make sure that it's not being used to 
separate families uh, for the sole purpose of, of housing minors. These are not solutions to our problems. These are not things that are actually making our immigration problems any better in any way, shape, or form. And I would like to see this money uh, reorganized in such a way that it does help people. And I think that we absolutely could. We could use it for research. We could also use it to make the, the entire process of immigration a much simpler and intuitive one. I do support abolishing ICE. As I said, it's it's a repetitive organization, and it, it siphons money away from, from organizations that do provide services for us. Uh, it should be abolished. I think this gets to a big question of government spending. You've touched upon it a bit here. Could you tell us about how federal dollars should be allocated in your eyes, as well as the problems you see with current allocation? Yeah, I, one of the biggest problems I have with current allocation I, I learned while I was in the military, uh, we had a use it or lose it budget. And essentially that means that if you only use 90% of your budget for this year, then next year 100% of your budget is equivalent to what 90% of your budget was last year. What this means for people in charge of spending is if you don't spend 100% of what's allocated to you, then you have made a terrible mistake. Nobody wants to be the commander whose legacy is destroying the budget of the organization. So you never see anyone willing to uh, make strides to save money. But if we did, the sheer amount of money that we could save from just individual squadrons in the Air Force, individual battalions in the Army, and not to mention all the state and local organizations throughout our country that also use these use-it-or-lose-it budgets. It's a simple way to budget. It's a way to understand uh, how much you need to collect versus how much you get to spend, but it's also childishly simplistic in a lot of ways, and it leads to a lot of overspending and a complete lack of, of conversations about how to save money, because that's essentially taken off the board completely. I think use it or lose it budgets just need to be taken away, and instead we should have things more like 10-year spending plans, uh, which makes a lot more sense, especially in the military, when there's a lot of organizations that their spending requirements are going to be very different each year. I worked in a shop that had a lot of computers. You don't replace every single computer in your shop every year, but eventually you do need to replace those computers, and that year is going to cost a lot of money. But what do you do in the interim? Well, unfortunately, in the interim, you, you buy a lot of chairs that you don't need. Every single year, we, we bought chairs. I believe every single one of them was worth about $140. They were lifetime warranty uh, guaranteed, but we would still throw them in the trash. Just hundreds of chairs thrown in the trash because it was the season. And then we would get brand new chairs, uh, also $140 each, and also with lifetime warranties, uh, bound for the trash in a few years whenever we, we needed to, to fill out the budget. These are terrible mistakes, and it's happening at every echelon. That's got to be solved. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Could you elaborate a bit more on your foreign policy platform? Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, I mean, there's there's a lot of individual aspects to it. I'll, I'll start with trade. Uh, this one's a, a very important one to me. I'll go ahead and talk about tariffs just because they're on a lot of people's minds right now. I, I don't think that these tariffs were a, an appropriate response to trade deficits. Instead, trade deficits should be dealt with with uh, modifying trade deals by blanket tariffs. I, I do respect that we needed to deal with China because they do have some problematic uh, trading techniques, but that's something that we could have spoken with the UN about because everybody's being hit by some of their, their currency manipulation. Now, my big thrust, though, before these tariffs ever came up, was about trading with uh, countries that still openly allow slavery or child labor. I'm okay with trading with countries in which it exists in their countries as long as these countries are doing everything within their power to combat child labor and slavery within their countries. But for the countries that aren't doing anything about it or are, quite frankly, benefiting from it, these are countries that we need to stop having these types of relationships with until they're able to, well, conduct business in a responsible way like the United States has for well over 100 years now. And would you echo those sentiments to countries funding humanitarian crises, propagating them, such as Saudi Arabia? I absolutely would. And I think that it's it's far past time that we stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Would you say the same applies to Israel? Ah, you see, now that's that's a fascinating question right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, that's that's a very hot button topic. Now, I, I'm not going to, to lie or sugarcoat it. I have serious problems with Benjamin Netanyahu. I, I think that he is a very destabilizing right-wing leader. And I don't think that he has any interest in a two-state solution. And right now, that is incredibly detrimental to peace in that region. I mean, the, the most preferable thing that I would like to see is is one of the other many political parties that, that quite frankly, have a lot of support in Israel take control of their parliament. I, I just think that that would be the best way to move forward on this because I, I, I can't see a lot of uh, influence from, from foreign countries really affecting what Israel does. But should we maybe call them out on some of the humanitarian issues and and start taking a look at exactly what kind of weapons we're selling them and what they're being used for? Yes, we need to talk about that. And we have to talk about that immediately. And what are your thoughts on our relations to North Korea? I think that we're doing a little bit better with North Korea than than we have been in the past. And that flabbergasts me, to be quite frank. I didn't expect anything that uh, that President Trump was doing in North Korea to be the least bit effective. And yet we're seeing that they haven't had any testing in quite some time. 
there, there's a lot less tension in the region currently, and we're actually seeing real diplomatic movements happening. Mostly they're not from Trump, they're more from South Korea, and that's reasonable, that's probably how it should be. But I feel like we have managed to kind of break through a barrier that hasn't been broken through before. I still don't trust North Korea. This needs to be something that can be proven. We, we need to have uh, members of the UN in North Korea able to verify denuclearization. I'm hopeful that maybe we can actually get something done in the region. And what are your thoughts on respecting indigenous sovereignty? I'm specifically thinking about Venezuela right now. We've heard Trump essentially suggest that a coup should be within the realm of possibility. What are your thoughts on this? I think that it is well past time that the United States gets out of the uh, the business of regime change. Quite frankly, I, I think it's a blight on our history, the amount of times that we, we have destabilized countries for the sole purpose of putting in uh, politicians that are more to our liking, uh, more likely to do trade deals with us. We cannot keep on this path. But with this current administration, I believe that they would be willing uh, to play the same games that we've played in the past. And that is very worrisome because it did feel like we were moving past it to a degree. As far as Venezuela is concerned, I think an investigation should be launched, especially after hearing about uh, political dissidents being uh, potentially imprisoned for long periods of time. I I've heard reports of torture. These things need to be investigated and I think the way that we need to approach this, if if these uh, allegations are in fact true, is the same way that we've dealt with other countries with humanitarian crises on their hands. Sanctions and uh, by, by using the power of the UN. I think that that's always proven itself to be one of the most functional ways. I think diplomacy first is always the best option. And this kind of subterfuge in the end has not truly served our nation because a lot of the unrest that we cause has come back to bite us. And it will again if we keep doing it. And speaking just generally, not specifically about Venezuela, do you believe that there are reasons to use military force? Uh, yes, I, I do think that there are situations that call for it. Uh, I, I mean, I am a veteran. Uh, I do think that at very least some of the strikes that we conducted were very much justified. That being said, I never thought that we should have gotten into Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, or, or any of these countries. But... We're here, and I mean, when when you have people on the ground uh, and you know that they're in danger, then then yes, at that point in time, you need to use military action. Uh, but as far as starting new wars, I that is that has got to be our last option, and I'm afraid that it's become oftentimes the first option. Diplomacy keeps falling through. So I, I want to see conversations uh, as long as possible, and I don't think that we should be the aggressor. The Department of Defense should be for our defense. It, it should not be for offense. And do you support removing U.S. military bases from around the world? I would be willing to uh, to get into talks with the, the hosting countries, because certainly there's some countries that enjoy having our presence, partially because it can be very good economically, but sometimes countries do want to have that, that military relationship with the United States. But there are plenty of countries that would prefer us to not be in. And when it comes time for these treaties, uh, because specifically that's the reason why we have military bases, for them to be renewed, we should have much more frank conversation with the leadership of those countries about whether or not they truly want these treaties renewed or not. But regardless of whether or not we do, it should be slow going. Uh, I 
I don't want to immediately pull out because it would be very destabilizing. And we need to make as little impact as possible when we move around our military because of the sheer amount of damage we've managed to do in the past uh, two decades. Switching gears a little bit, I'm curious about your criminal justice platform. Could you tell us about it? I, I guess I guess the most popular item on this is we, we've got to legalize marijuana. And and I have got to start calling it cannabis instead of marijuana. I, I learned recently about kind of the racist history of, of saying the word marijuana. We definitely need to legalize cannabis, but that's only a small portion of it. So we have about... 10% of our prison population right now is uh, in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. I think that they should be released immediately. But that's not going to fix the full issue of our justice system. We have about 93 to 95% of all cases end up going to plea deals. And this is incredibly problematic because what we have on our hands is a two-tier justice system. If you can afford a good lawyer, you encounter a completely different world than if you have to have a, a public defender. So some of the things that we need to do is, of course, legalize the cannabis. I think that we should decriminalize all other drugs and actually treat them more as a mental health issue for people who have addictions because, as it turns out, rehab clinics have a much better success rate than prison sentences. We also need to put a lot more money into indigent defense. Uh, right now, there's incredibly little. Public defender offices are incredibly understaffed. They have entirely too much on their plate. Uh, I heard from one source like that, that every case that a public defender has in the United States, they have about eight minutes to prepare for. That's simply not enough. So we definitely need to get the more funding in there and we need to to make sure that we're dealing with with some of these crimes, but it also has to do with the way the police behaves, uh, the profiling that goes on, and that means that we need training for our police forces. So some of the things that have been functional is courses that are specifically about de-escalation, and I'd like to see that universally applied. So when we do talk about crime, we almost always talk about blue collar crime. What do you hope to do to hold white collar crime accountable? Well, I think that the best thing that we can do is actually prosecute it. So many times white collar criminals are never even taken to court. Now, a lot of times they're able to defend themselves and and a lot of that I can't necessarily help. Uh, it would be very interesting to talk with people who have more experience uh, in the courtroom during the hearings uh, and see what's said by the, the prosecution and but just making sure that these white collar crimes do get to uh, a court battle is incredibly important because I'd say the main reason why they're not seeing justice is because they're never even seeing the court in the first place. We need to have uh, an attorney general in our country that's much more willing to go after these types of crimes. Unfortunately, that probably won't exist for at least two more years, but I'm hopeful that once we make that switch, once we get uh, a democratic president in office, we can have an attorney general who's who's much more intent on prosecuting these crimes. Because I, I think in the end, that's what hurts our economy more than anything else. It's certainly not the petty thievery uh, that's happening. It's not Grand Theft Auto that's, that's causing us uh, economic hardship. It's whenever these big banks uh, run amok over us. Any talk about defunding the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I, I will not have. That, that organization has only been around for four years, and it has still managed to already save consumers of the United States billions of dollars, that's entirely too important to, to get rid of. 
And what are your thoughts on decriminalizing sex work? I think we should absolutely decriminalize sex work. The reason being, uh, quite frankly, I think this got highlighted during the uh, the FOSTA-SESTA battle more than anything else, because when it came down to it, both the House and Senate were more than willing to pass that because the language showed that they were trying to fight human trafficking. Well, I think that's all well and good, and we most certainly need to be fighting human trafficking. But when we took away the internet as a resource uh, to sex workers, we put them in danger. That was a terrible mistake on our part. I think, honestly, if, if we were to decriminalize and we no longer treated people who were engaged with sex work as criminals and we could instead talk to them, we would be much more effective in finding the people that don't actually want to be part of that world. Because there are people who, who are being trafficked. But we can't conflate sex trafficking and sex work because they're incredibly different from each other. Yes, I, I definitely agree with uh, decriminalizing. And I think that that's in a big way, going to be very helpful in the fight against human trafficking. What would you hope to do to politically enfranchise sex workers who really have no representation or support in federal government? It's it's becoming a little bit less taboo. And I think that there's probably a lot more allies of sex workers uh, around today who are starting to become uh, politically active, people who are starting to run for office. This is probably something that needs to be approached at a state level first, uh, in the same way that cannabis has been approached at a state level first, and that was able to break down a lot of the resistance to legalizing cannabis. And I think we're much closer today to legalizing nationally because of that. So if we start seeing more states getting behind legalization of sex work and the protection of sex work and you know making sure that sex workers are actually getting properly paid uh, and, and these kinds of things and, and getting you know health insurance and, and all of this, then we're going to start seeing it become a much more acceptable thing to talk about on a federal level, and we can start seeing real change. I'd like to go back to a point you made earlier about holding those who perpetrate mass human suffering accountable. Something that has not picked up a lot of political steam is reparations for the descendants of enslaved Africans and Black Americans who were marginalized by Jim Crow. Do you support reparations? I think that we could come up with a form of reparations that's uh, acceptable to everyone. And I, I think that that is something that we, we need to have more real conversations about. It shouldn't immediately be shot down, and I'm afraid that it usually is. I don't know exactly what kind of form uh, I'd want to see it in, because a, a direct rebate to people doesn't seem quite right. Uh, and to me, I, I think that any type of reparations really needs to be focused on undoing the damage of systemic racism that exists within our country. But yes, we need to have that conversation. And we need to make sure that there is at least some sort of compensation for, for people whose lives are clearly still affected by what happened so long ago. Lastly, what can folks do to get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? Ah, definitely. Well, you can find me online at iantoddforcongress.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, it's a slash Todd for the number Congress. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. That's at iantoddformn. And uh, if anyone wants to get involved, I mean, of course, we're always looking for donations. Uh, we're a grassroots campaign. That's code for poor. But it also means that we want your small dollar donations 
donations. We we are so proud of the fact that even though we're never going to be able to out-fundraise our uh, corporate PAC-fueled opponent, at very least, we have a lot more small dollar donations than he has. And that's really meaningful. It feels like I actually have the support from the people instead of organizations. So it's always nice to see that. Uh, and if anyone's willing to, to help text out the vote, they want to make phone calls for us, uh, regardless of where you are in the country. You can do that, and we can make that happen. Uh, for everyone who is around here in district, we are constantly having an events for both phone banks, text banks, uh, door knocks, and uh, just rallies that are for fun and for getting people excited about voting. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and we hope to get you on again after you are a congressman-elect in November. Jordan, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear the newest episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening.